I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and this is 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. My guests today are two practicing architects, John Pardy and Chris Loyne. And we're here to talk about Montague House, one of John's recent projects, a beautiful little house on Hailing Island, and more generally, the challenges of designing houses for private clients. John, do you want to kick off by telling us where the project started? I think with a phone call or an email, like usual these days, Mm. you know. Um, And it was a guy called Simon Montague, and he was very chatty, and I arranged to meet him and his wife on site. Um, That's how most things start. But the trouble is with me, once I've been on a site, I've got a design done in my head. So when I walked away, I knew what I wanted to do, and that was a bit annoying. Yeah, I've seen that in action. Yeah, I described it to them whilst I was there. (laughs) And, and uh, that sort of alarmed them a bit because I suggested with a, with a site like that, and it's on the, you know, obviously on a floodplain, the house had to be elevated 600 millimetres, which isn't much, but it seemed so obvious to lift up above the local fencing to the boatyard and have a fantastic view across the harbour. Um, but they, they were delightful. I was surprised they chose me straight off. Always am, because you always assume you're not going to get it. These days, there's so many architects chasing every job. This is probably three years ago or something now. Four years, maybe. Um, that's how it arrived. Yeah. And how close, how close is the finished house to those sketches you did at that first meeting? Well, the finished house and the sketches I sent you are the same thing, pretty much, aren't they? That's not to say I'm a genius and it all pops out. And it doesn't. It takes hard work. But the basics, the basics on nearly every house are done by the site. You know, where's the view? Where's the site? Where's the shape of, you know, what's the shape of the site? Made the shape of part of the building. Um, There's a view. There's the sun. There's the accent. That's the first thing I do, draw that stuff. Not rocket science. It's not. (laughs) No. And and yet, John, it amazes me how few architects draw things in context. I know. I know. And it drives me insane. You look at the planning register, and there are these floating houses somewhere okay. in Mars or space or somewhere. That's crazy, and, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's blindingly <laughs> obvious, as Isabel said. You just you analyse that site, and out of it comes a solution. I do the same as you. I sketch. Yeah. Straight away. Yeah, straight away. And if I don't I do it on the site, I do it as soon as I get back. Even if it's late in the evening, I can always draw out what I've seen because that creates the design quite quickly, doesn't it? I I do think, though, that that ability to um, operate like that comes from a huge personal confidence and also knowing you have a certain uh, status or mandate within your office and with the client. So, um, I mean, I know a lot about how John's uh, studio operates. I know much less about how Chris's operates. But, um, you know, there's an understanding. There's a mutual respect. They know you're going to come back from a meeting with pretty much the end design. But they also know that you know that without the months and months of hard work and expertise, it wouldn't go anywhere. Um, And I think, you know, once you've reached a certain position where you can kind of walk away from any job and you're not desperately trying to demonstrate the amount of time you've done and why you're billing those hours and taking them with you and making them think it was their idea and all those tricks that you have to play when you're you know actually really really competing for everything that that's that becomes much more efficient so uh, um isn't it back to picasso saying when he did his little doodle of the dove 
how long did that take you, said somebody who saw it. And he looked at me and said, a lifetime. Exactly. And it is, it's an experience of doing things. You, you don't just look, you see. This is my big thing at the moment, seeing, not looking. You know, when the planners say, yeah. um, oh, I've looked at your drawings. Yeah, but you haven't seen them. Have you? you haven't felt them. You haven't. And, and that's what comes from doing this. I think, John, tell me if I'm wrong, but from doing it many times. I mean, I, I looked at your scheme, the photographs, the plans. I knew that was in the right place. I knew there was going to be the view. <laughs> what, where, where else should the deck be but up there so you can see that? I mean, it's, it's a logical process, but when there's nothing there... It's those years of doing it that enable you to see. It definitely is. And I, I do admit to being super confident whenever I walk on a site. And I no longer actually get stressed about whether I'm going to get the job or not. I used to. Mm-hmm. Every job you needed the work, you blah, blah. And I, of course we need work. And, you know, I'm nothing without clients. None of us are, are we? No, you know, not at any cost. And I always say to clients, perhaps it sounds a bit, um, a bit wrong. But if you don't trust me, please don't work with me. Yeah, you know, because oh. that's the bottom line, and they've got to make that one yeah. yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I think it's a very fine line, isn't there, between listening to your client, respecting your client, yeah, yeah. and actually understanding that your job is to give them something they couldn't have dreamt of and to give them your take on it. And I mean, I know from having worked as a client with John and with, with various other architects, you know, sometimes I was in that relationship where I'd be like, well, they've really listened, but it's kind of as good as I could have done if my technical skills were a bit more polished. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually, you're looking for an architect because you want them to listen, but give you the solution that you wouldn't have arrived at yourself. It's very timely that we're having this conversation because I've just had a new inquiry in. And um, the chap, he ended up with one of the classic ones of saying, we kind of know what we want. Yeah. And and I have got, it's become a bit of a stock response, but I said, yep, but I'm going to irritate the hell out of you by challenging those, mm. giving you alternatives and pushing you. Otherwise, I said, I'm bringing nothing to the table and there's no point in me here. What you need is a exactly. technician to draw up what you know you want. And it's that mutual respect and development of a relationship yeah. that makes it... And when it works, isn't it great, John? It's bloody awesome. Well, that's why we do. Very good. <laughs> I mean, people are saying to me, I love your passion. I'm not exactly that passionate person, really. I'm quite boring. But I do love what I do. I do love what I do. And if you love it, you're going to give it everything every time. And it doesn't matter what size the house is, what the client is, their status, their standard. You know, I love every client we've worked with. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we remain friends with all of them. Yes. You build that relationship. It's ongoing, yeah? Building. It's not just building a house, is it? No. And, you know, it's invading their lives, John. Exactly. And Isabel, you said a while ago, um, why did I make the decision to do houses? Well, you, you don't, do you? I kind of qualified thinking I was going to do art galleries, libraries, and all those wonderful things that you would mm. love to do. But life wasn't like that. You know, I just couldn't get the work. I wasn't prepared to compromise. 14, 15 years of postgrad tutoring part-time to hold on, pay the mortgage. And then, you know, one job came along that changed my life and you put it on the cover of a magazine. And from that moment on, I was seen as somebody doing houses and residential work. And that's fine, you know? Yeah. 
Well, yeah. I think, um, you know, you, you love your, I mean, you are a little bit of a gossip in the nicest possible way. And I mean that in oh, yeah. the sense that you're interested in people and what makes them tick and the dynamics of their relationship and their yeah. image and yeah. all those things. And I think, you know, you've, uh, you've written your book, which Chris and I talked about the other day and have both it's read possibly. and enjoyed hugely. <laughs> and what's interesting about it is that it's not a straight architectural history. It's absolutely the story. Above all, I'd say it's the story of the dynamic between the architect and the client. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, if that's what makes you tick, housing is the most acute expression of that particular chemistry, so isn't it? it? Is. Yeah. It well, is. arguably, it's the most important, isn't it? Yeah, it's where we exist. And it's funny, although this sounds also a bit personal, but I only became an architect because of a friend of my father when I was I was a bit lost, late teens, done my A levels, hanging out, no, no real plans to go and study, but this voice in my head, this chap who lived a few doors away from me, who was very elderly, and he was an architect. I didn't really know what architects did. He just kept saying to me, you must be an architect. You must be an architect. Hmm. I think I've told you this before, actually, Isabel. His name was Robert van Hoff. He was one of the founders of De Stiel in Holland. And he'd become disaffected and he was a communist and just happened to be married to part of the royal family, which made it affordable. And he he ended up living in downtown New Forest. And he was lovely to me because I could draw. And that's Um. what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, draw. And so when he... And I pushed this stuff down my throat. I finally got the hang of it. And, and um, then it took one more step, which was getting married a bit young and being bullied by Julie to learn study. Because um, <laughs> I was lost for a while. So I started late, but boy, did I fall in love with it. Yeah. And I can draw every day like you, Chris. I draw yeah. every day. I love it. My paints are down here. I was painting last night, painting perspectives. and It's great, yeah. isn't it? It's fabulous. I, I often say to people, if, if, if when I was in school, somebody had told me that I'm going to spend the rest of my life painting, drawing and making yeah. things like Meccano, but, you know, for real, I never believed them. Yeah, and, great, isn't it? It's just wonderful, isn't it? I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. You're listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. You can subscribe at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. That story about Van Toff, the thing he kept telling me about was a guy called Garrett Rietveld, who he found as a joiner to do furniture in the first house he built in Holland in 1916, which is incredibly long ago. So I've kind of got all that contact way back to that. And he loved Rietveld. So I discovered Rietveld's chairs. He commissioned. And... You know, the lights went on and off I went. Well, what a nice way to start. Beautiful. That's, it's mm. like the first house in the book as well, because I found out more and more about Rietveld's life and the way he fell in love with his client, which is not a wise thing to do, Chris, don't do it. <laughs> that way. But, you know, he fell in love with his client and um, he went home to his wife every night, despite that, until she died. Until then, they moved into the house that he'd built for her. Which I always found so tender and loving. That's a lovely thought. Mm, yes. I just love that personal thing. Houses are containers for life. I think I've said that in the book, actually. It's well, it is. So right. I mean, it's an enormous privilege, isn't it, to be trusted with that yeah. very kind of 
you know, intimate position of actually defining the the self-image, the dynamics, the relationships that happen within the private sphere. You know, I think it's a sort of terrifying responsibility and it's uh, it's that old Cedric Price thing, isn't it? Actually, a couple ask, what is it? They ask you to design a new house and you should be asking if actually they need a divorce. But, you know, it kind of sums it up. You are straight in the middle of those very, very private dynamics. Yeah. Um, yeah. How many times have I sat with clients who suddenly are having a full-on row in front of me over a kitchen? Yeah. Well, we seriously <laughs> joke that part of the um, terms of engagement uh, the, and the service that we offer is marriage guidance counselling. Because <laughs> there is nothing like a piece of architecture. I didn't mean that. When I said I wanted light, I meant, you know. Yeah, 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 completely. It, <laughs> so I... I my students always, and funny enough, again, this morning I was tapping an email out to one of the students, just stressing this need to, to communicate mm. at mm. all different stages. And the drawings that you do have to be different for different people to, your, your drawings to your client can be different to the ones that you give to the planners mm. for a free application, which are different to... So once you give to the builder, which are different to the one, and, yeah. and they go on and they have to morph each time. Yeah. And it's mm. always communication. No, and that is the danger, isn't it? Sorry, go on, John. No, it's lovely you're talking about drawing again, because I've got a real issue these days with, shall I say, the generation below me, who were the first ones to really start designing on computers. Yeah. I think computers are here. We ain't going to change that. That's fine. We use them. I've got two in front of me. I'm talking of one. I don't draw on a computer because I choose not to. And anyway, why would I try and do that when somebody is brought up with it is so much more fluent? But there's this terrible thing I've noticed since leaving teaching, which is a long time ago now, that people are just designing for the image. They're designing for publication. They're designing for the CGI view. Yeah. It's kind of fashion. That really pisses me off. Well- yeah. You say that, John, and I agree to an extent, but I was really struck when I read your book about the fact that, for example, falling water, yeah. uh, you know, I felt that your verdict in the end was, you know, what it was designed for that image. It's an amazing image. It's probably it the is. most iconic image in residential architecture of the last two centuries. Mm. But actually, do you know what? You go in the back door and it's a bit low ceilinged and a bit pokey and you don't really get the view. And it's a bit of a letdown after that. So I don't think that kind of obsession with the one liner is a new thing or technology dependent. Well, it's not falling water. It so happened that that drawing, which Frank Wright didn't draw it, somebody else wasn't in the office, caught it perfectly. And that's amazing. I try and do that always in a drawing, definitely. Mm. What I'm thinking now is more... A generation of architects who are so proficient on, they'll produce amazing CGIs. I see it all the time. And along with that, you have yeah. inundation of images coming at you. You know, I like looking at magazines and um, mainly I read books. You know, if I want to look at an architecture, I'll pick up a book. And that was my mantra when mm. I was, you know, I'm sure students will remember, stop reading magazines and read books. I shouldn't say that to a magazine editor. But actually, magazine- yeah, apart from mine. Yes. But now we have all these things online and I'm seeing hundreds of things. I just delete. I don't want to see it. Yeah. Because I think you get caught up Um, in the world. Isn't the missing link here, though, that it is so easy to uh, imagine things, to do the shape making. But if you don't know what a house brick is, you can't build it. 
That's true. And it's what I stress that the students, you know, they sometimes they'll they'll put an image of brickwork and they'll Photoshop it into something and it'll look there. And I look at it, I say, it's the wrong scale. And I said, oh, well, how, how big's a brick? Get out there and measure one, find <laughs> one, touch it, feel the weight of it. You know, understand that a foundation is a slop of concrete in a hole in the ground. It's not this little perfect thing that is absolutely like, you know, get uh, We're in the business. If you're in the business of architecture, you're in the business of making, not just drawing. And um, I think you're right, though, John. I, I, I thump all of my students to hand draw still. And I, I do a, a course up in Machantleth in the Centre for Alternative Technology, purely on drawing. And I scare the pants off the students when I tell them we're going outside to draw in nature and you're going to do a watercolour and I'm not going to let you take any paints. Huh? And they have to use earth and plants and things to make the paint. <laughs> and afterwards, they love it and they get it, that that's context. It could only have been done there. You know, and it's that yeah. connection. Yeah. Almost nostalgic about oh. having a backache from staying up all night drawing <laughs> on a drawing board. You know, I still get it. I've got mine up there. It's bloody killing me. <laughs> Uh, I kind of sit nicely now. I try not to bend over too much. <laughs> you know, there was a wonderful time where it was angle poise until three in the morning or four in the morning, yeah. and just producing something meaningful, beautiful, yeah. that could communicate an idea. Still there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's also, I mean, I certainly find it in, in writing that the people who learn to write on word processors mm. tend to take three times as long to kind of write up something quite simple because they produce 5,000 words and then they need a day to edit it down. Whereas if you learn longhand, do you know what? Somebody asks you for 300 words, you write 300 words. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just what you do, you know, and it's you really think about it first. And, um, and I suppose just to get back to Montague House, uh, I was chatting to Simon Esterson, who's a wonderful graphic designer who loves the house, by the way. And... Um, I was saying, oh, you know, it's really nice. You can tell it's, oh, don't take this the wrong way, John. But I was like, you can tell it's a really mature architect because it's kind of so childlike and simple, you know, and you've done those big, you know, you've done the, I don't know, Narula and Atwood and those kind of big statement houses. Um, But actually just got to come back, like, do you know what? It's it's kind of humble. It's not big, flash yachting company. It's a little scrappy boatyard. You know, it is a... It is a big, expensive house, but the appropriate aesthetic is not showy. And it's funny because I was looking at your key on the plan and it said swimming pool. I said, swimming pool, really? And kind of looked again. And it is sitting there, but it does the opposite to almost every other swimming pool I've ever seen. Like usually the point of a swimming pool is, oh, look at the swimming pool. And all the photos are kind of taken with the blue light and the sun lounger. And, you know, I hadn't really spotted it as a swimming pool. It's almost embarrassed that it's, it's a swimming pool. You know, it's, it's kind of willfully modest in a way that I think maybe Duckett House is the obvious precedent from your projects. Um, yeah, I so I, yeah, I love it. I love the idea of being humble and modest. And I don't try and show off, never, ever. Because no. that's when you end up, you know, designing things for a magazine cover. Which, no, 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 not interested. Yeah. It, it's a, a yeah. process it's through you it is not you it is not about you yeah. get the hell out of it it's not you and anyway it goes through a process of lots of fantastic architects that work with me as well to produce this 
Yeah. So that idea that it is humble, why not? And it is actually very simple, it's just a house. This is AT Conversations with Inevidesk. To find out more, visit inevidesk.uk. Each building's unique, but actually the stuff in my head is very consistent. You know, the material mm. is, I won't, you know, there are things I just will not do unless, unless yeah. context absolutely insists on it. So I don't like white rendered houses and all that stuff. Um, you know. Is that a practical thing about weathering and cracking and all those things, or is it a stylistic thing about the connotations? I remember in my second year flying on a wonderful Dakota from an airfield, a grass airfield in Kent, such was the trip so cheap um, to Paris. And of course, rocked up at Villa Savoie, which I'd been force fed by tutors. And everything was about Le Corbusier's villas. And I, I loved them, and I loved the ideas and the abstraction and the ambition. But you walk up to it and it was green and it was cracked and it was awful. And the pure prism was just broken. That was it. I was finished with render from that day on. You know, mm. as an idea, wonderful. But no. And, and now you get all these silicon renders, but they go green in no time. Yeah. You want to sit yeah. Down. Just, no, don't want to know. Yeah. And I'm not interested in style for the sake of it. it you know, I just, I just steal from great Danish architects, as you know, and um, a bit of this and a bit of that. But everything's been done before, so I'm not, I'm not worried by that. But that kind mm. of lovely palette of natural materials, because you know then it's going to weather better. Mm-hmm. Montague House, that boarding will have to be redone in 10, 15 years, I'm sure, to look pristine. But we've had it factory applied, so it's really well done. It won't rot. It's, it's going to be fine. But ultimately, it's going to need a wash and it's going to need a, a lick of paint one day. But everything does, John. That's maintenance and everything that's, has yeah. a lifetime. And that's part of the judgment of, to me, what makes a good piece of architecture is something that is like, like us, John. You see, we're getting better in the years. We're, we're weathering well we are. <laughs> the pure like a wine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think also though there's a very specific I mean people don't talk about the maintenance regime enough and I think it's fascinating and you know mm-hmm. you've obviously built up this client base amongst kind of seafaring people basically but partly because of the geography of where you are and the people you employ but you know people who are used to boats ugh, it's all in a day's work they totally understand that you know you don't want something that isn't watertight if you love something you look after it you varnish it you maintain it that's part of the joy you know um, that's a different demographic. You're doing rented housing that people don't think they have to spend any time on and that's the joy of it and they're moving in that. That's a different set of constraints. I mean, to me, the ownership and the expectations and commitment regarding maintenance should be right up there with the, you know, how many bedrooms you need and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's really, really important. And I was fascinated by the idea of weathering and from a tutor at PCL when I studied there, a guy called David Leatherborough, he wrote a book on weathering. And he was mm, such a awesome, PhD kind of brain head. But it was amazing. And it made me see architecture as a thing that endures. It should mm. endure. And housing, mm. they last for generations because they pass from family to family. You don't want to pass on a complete nightmare. Do you ever, Chris, get clients say, I want, you know, they had come up with something quirky. I had one guy who said, I want to be able to sit outside and in the sun when it's out at six o'clock in the evening, when I have a glass of wine. Every yes. day. I thought, that's great. And I found that spot. And he I, does do that. I also had a client who said, I want to be able to stand there in front of a frameless glass, mm-hmm. totally naked, yeah. and a storm raging. <laughs> so yeah. you, 
you know, right. you do deal with some very interesting, uh, exactly as you were saying at the beginning, it's so personal, some of this, that, you know, you, you invade their lives and they have to trust you and like you. <laughs> mm. <laughs> They're going to confess things like this. And, yeah. Chris and John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great talking to you. This is AT Conversations with Inevidesk. To subscribe, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.